I should like to confess now that I lied to you once and only once during my introduction. I can assure you, however, that I remain a reliable narrator. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 292 for the week of March 2nd, 2020. I am Bad Pie Options, David T. Cole, and I'm here with vaguely threatening introductory video, Sarah D. Bunting. Not if you agree. Conspiracy theorist, Tara Ariano. This is a government operation. And walking alternate reality game, Dave Chen. I suggest we skip introduction. Welcome to Extra Hot Great. Joining us for the very first time, my co-host on the Sweet Smell of Succession podcast, David Chen. Hello, David. Hello, Dave. Hello. Yay! Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We are here to talk about AMC's newest show, Dispatches from Elsewhere. This is a hard one to summarize. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> Jason Siegel, who also created the show, uh, stars as Peter. He works at a Spotify type of company in Philadelphia. He is lonely and bored. His life is very routine. One night he happens to be out. He sees someone putting up a wanted poster for what seems to be himself, <laughs> the, the person who's putting up the poster. He pulls a tab, he calls a number, he gets drawn into a very strange, essentially a, a, what Dave described as like a, a text adventure game playing out in real life uh, on the streets of Philadelphia. And this puts him into contact with people he would probably otherwise never meet, including Simone, Fredwin, and Janice, Janet, Janice, the Sally Field character, Janice. Um So the show is based on a documentary called The Institute from a few years ago. We did not watch it, but if you care to, you can rent it or buy it on Amazon Prime uh, about this, a real game that's like the one depicted in the show that you can, uh, that played out for several years in San Francisco. Duh, where else? (laughs) David, you are a mainstay commentator on the Slash Film Podcast. So let's start with a movie question. Exactly how hard would you say Dispatches from Elsewhere is straining to evoke Charlie Kaufman in these first two episodes that have aired? Or did you find it a pleasing homage? Uh, I would say to answer your question quite a bit. But, <laughs> you know, to to call in the language of movies, I think one of the challenges the show has is... Uh, you're, you're basically watching four people go on a scavenger hunt, at mm-hmm. least for the first couple episodes. And uh, that is very difficult to make into something that's cinematic. Yeah. Uh, and they pull out every trick in the bag to do that. Um, I think they have very uh, interestingly played archetypes by the four main actors. Um, and there's a lot of production design and art direction that goes into crafting this world that they're going through. Uh, there's many things I appreciate about the show. Ultimately, I don't really think it's for me. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I appreciate that like a lot of hard work went into it and, and it's, uh, it's doing its best, uh, as you indicated to try to kind of make this game as interesting as possible for an outsider. Um, Dave, in your intro, you referenced alternate reality game ARG, which is a thing that people do. Could you like briefly explain to the audience what an ARG is and uh, this sort of what, at least at first blush, they're doing in the show? 
Yeah, uh, as far as I understand, alternate reality games are like sometimes when uh, a corporation is promoting something like a video game or a show or something like that, they'll leave little clues on internet websites, you know, in the source code or in a tiny image or pixel you're supposed to click on. And then you click on it and it brings you to another clue and it brings you to another clue. And it's kind of this whole meta game. Uh, that sometimes takes place in real life that's kind of on top of the existing game if it's like marketing a video game or a board game or whatever. Uh, and so that's why it's called like alternate reality game. It's, it's ostensibly a game that takes place uh, in real life, uh, but it's not the thing that is being promoted. Is right. That, did I do a good job of that? Is that pretty Yeah, close? no, I think that's good. I think another way to looking at it is a piece of alternate reality cellophane over our world. And that yeah. is what you're playing. It's on our world, but not exactly of our world, but it has weird little ties to it. And well, and there's use a lot in video game marketing for sure. Right. We, yeah. we see some references to that where they're holding up a screen where it's like made to look like Nessie is in a river or whatever in one of the shots. Right. Sarah, you are a lover of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but I feel like this was probably uh, over twee for a Sarah T. Bunting. <laughs> well, Here's the thing. Um, it, it's like basically my dream to fall into a situation mm-hmm. like this. Like all of the sort of fictional worlds that I create as a writer have to do with like catacombs. Um, like <laughs> yeah. a, a few years ago in that, was it Pokemon? Where yeah, yeah. everyone was like geocaching the some game and like people were sort of trying to break into a cemetery that was near my house Mm -hmm. wow okay with this game like that kind of thing i find really uh, like really fascinating and it's sort of my dream to be given like a five dollar bill that that has like a code on it and then the next thing i know you know portals through the city um with that said it's it's difficult, like Dave Chen said, to make something like this um, watchable and not too cutesy. Uh, I did see the documentary, and oh. it the first two episodes of the show, of um, Dispatches from Elsewhere hew quite closely to it. But I will also say there is enough. Um, there's enough like everything from the theme song of the induction video to the graphics like it is extremely reminiscent of in search of mm-hmm. in good ways and bad but yeah. because i have uh bonded with that show for <laughs> better or worse especially the weird little musical cue at the yes title card yeah, yeah. do 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 like uh, i mean even the like the way the like even the chord progression is like oh my god someone <laughs> Someone else did a Spock era in search of rewatch. I, it's right on the line for me. I think the performances are very appealing. Um, I think it's sort of interesting that Philadelphia is having this like TV moment suddenly, but then it's always peopled by characters who clearly have never been there or heard a Philadelphia <laughs> accent to Tara's <laughs> relief. I'm sure. <laughs> But this this one is right on the line. Like, I'm going to keep watching it because this, like, the concept is, like, there's all these things in it that are eye rollers. But then when you throw them all together, it's, like, in search of JT Leroy. Like, I, I don't know. I'm I'm interested to see how they make the documentary, which was in on the joke, go for 10 episodes. But, I mean, I'll I'll look. And... The Jason Siegel character is not one that you 
often see, like they're really not trying to make him very interesting. Mission succeeded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his biggest personality trait is that he doesn't have a personality. Yes. I think. <laughs> exactly. And and that he will vocalize this. He's like, yeah, I'm not used to, you know, being around people and having to have opinions. Oh, one other thing I love is that SVU is like this light motif. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's at least in the first two. So, I mean, they're, they're preaching to a Buncey choir with this, but I totally get that this is not going to be a lot of people's um, cup of Earl Grey, for sure. <laughs> I thought when we started watching this show and I realized they were talking sort of about an ARG and then question mark. Like, I don't know where this show is going, but there are some characters that are saying like, how real uh, is this game or something else? I don't know where they're going with that. But the fact that the structure of this is playing an ARG, it is frustrating to me that you as the audience member can't really play along with it. It is akin to watching somebody play a sort of point-and-click adventure and not playing it yourself. So you don't really get the full picture. So it's not a show like Westworld where they're building a mystery to be solved. There is a mystery that you're not really party to solving, (laughs) which is frustrating when the whole conceit of the show is that there's an ARG going on and the whole point of an ARG is to be played and solved. We should point out, too, by the way, that, like, one of the characteristics of an alternate reality game is that, like, the the alternate reality game pretends as though it is reality, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's not meant to come off as a game. It's meant, like, oh, you are actually discovering a truth that no one else knows. Right. That's generally something that's true of alternate reality games is, like, they it's, it's not like, here's a fake corporation that you're, you know, playing around with. It's like, nope, this is a real thing that you're discovering. Um, so I just wanted to, to call that out as well because that's a, an important part of what I think they're doing here. Yeah. So I found that aspect of it a little frustrating. Going back to the lead, I don't know whether to give him kudos or scratch my head over the fact that the creator of this show gave himself such a nothing lead. I realized that in the narrative uh, little bit at the start by Richard E. Grant, you know, the whole thing at the end of the episode is picture yourself as this person. And certainly he's enough of a blank slate that that works for everybody. But it actually might be too zombie, too oatmeal to actually get there for me. Am I impressed that he gave himself such little to work with or am I disappointed that is such a truly nothing character that leads the show? Let me ask you this. Could he, could you replace your regular coffee with Joel Kinnaman crystals and get the same result? (laughs) I'm I'm sincerely asking because I'm I'm sort of like play like doing the puzzle in my mind and I I mean, I, I think it is actually a different show like J- jason siegel threatens to be interesting joel kinnaman never does true true yeah um if if the question is siegel zombie or kinnaman regular is definitely siegel zombie <laughs> wow <laughs> i cannot stand that guy dave i'm telling you he's he is my kryptonite for pop culture yeah i mean i i'm interested <laughs> i do think that the underlying theme of loneliness and the kind of atomization of people in an urban environment is like an interesting topic to explore and one that certainly I feel like comes up more and more and deserves to be taken seriously in in our times but at the same time the knowing that Jason Siegel is the creator of this show and I said this to Dave earlier like the the idea of like this is what a celebrity thinks a normal person's boring dumb life is. it's like is there a way that a celebrity could have 
imagined Peter that wouldn't have felt condescending? Or is that just me? Like, did anyone else feel like he was laying it on too thick or that like that that Peter's stultifying routine was like so brutal like do we have to see him eating a burrito in bed like you know milk I mean? and noodles yes milk and noodles oh stop drinking milk it's a burrito you're in bed where's the crime yeah I, I mean i'll just say i actually thought that uh the uh part about jason siegel like the opening of the show kind of spends a few minutes saying like how terrible jason siegel's life is and apart from being a little bit unself-aware in the sense that there's lots of people who would kill to have a well-paying stable boring job yeah uh, putting that aside i do think that it actually does a decent job of capturing the uh, malaise one might be able to feel uh, when one works at a tech job for a long period of time. Yeah. Not that I've ever felt that personally. <laughs> um, I'm just, say- but I just saying, like it felt like it didn't, it didn't necessarily strike home, but it struck close to home, as mm. people say. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't find it. It's a little over the top, but the whole show is over the top. You know true, what I mean? So true. it, it wasn't like, oh wow, that's way off base. Um, so that's just my opinion. My problem with that character and actually all the characters, at least through the first two episodes, is that they seem like character notes on a page rather than people at this point. Yes. Jason Siegel's Peter, he's socially awkward. He's, you know, an introvert. He loves milk and noodles for some reason. He's just very boring. (laughs) And could they spice up that character a bit to give him some relatability? Yes, they could have. Was this Jason Siegel's way of really hammering the point that he is such a blank slate that you can inhabit him for the purposes of this show, you know, and, and your entryway into this ARG is playing? Maybe, but yeah. I don't think that bargain works out too well for the show because I found the lead just when he was in it. I was like, oh, God, it just kind of feels like when you're drifting off to sleep, you know, those couple minutes before <laughs> you're just like almost <laughs> in this other world, but not quite. And, you know, it's yeah. really like, well, this. This may proceed from his own malaise. He was talking to um, the New York Times reviewer who wrote about the show, Alexis Soloski, about his having this kind of career midlife crisis and feeling becalmed in his work life after How I Met Your Mother ended, which is like, okay, like you would think that would be freeing. That's just my opinion of that show. (laughs) But um he, and also it's been a minute, so I, I don't know, but th- that could just be his, um, like maybe he was just not either able to see or able to take any constructive notes on the fact that this, the nothing burgerosity of the character might have been a little aggressive. <laughs> yes, he feels like a background character in being John Malkovich or something. Yeah. Like it doesn't yeah. feel real to me. And I didn't stake anything on his character moving forward just because he seemed like such a nothing to me. It was just a weird choice. A couple things. First of all, uh can't believe you're making me defend the show, but here I go. Uh, <laughs> number number two is I I am not putting it past the show that like the fact that the characters seem to represent more archetypes slash ideas as opposed to being actual people, that that is going to be somehow revealed to be part of the storytelling in an intentional way down the line. You know what I mean? Like that that might be the case. So like, you know, maybe, maybe withhold judgment on that. I don't know, you know, but, um, but speaking of being John Malkovich, I actually wrote this down in my notes to bring that movie up because 
the problem with the the show is actually not the characters because I think like actually I think the relationship between Jason Siegel's character and Eve Lindley's character I actually really like it I think there's a lot of chemistry there um, and uh, I think she is great like this is kind of her breakout performance as far as I can tell she's been in other things but like yeah. this is the first thing I've seen her in where she can really um, really shine as an actor uh, but I wrote down being John Malkovich because my problem with the show is that. I never really for a moment believe that this alternate reality game could actually be something bigger and real. Uh, and that is most close, like that is best encapsulated in the scene when Jason Siegel goes into the Jejun Institute, I think it is for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. And he sits in the chair and he like watches the TV presentation and stuff like that. And like, it's all, everything just feels over-designed and over-produced. Mm-hmm. You, like, it, it feels like, oh, this is clearly designed so that one person can sit in this chair and look at this. And, uh, you know, all, even all the cards, like when he looks at the cards afterwards, it's like designed for him. Uh, compare that to the seven and a half floor from yeah. being John Malkovich. Yes. Where like, even though that's a r- ridiculous outlandish thing, it feels lived in. It feels yes. like... Oh, like as as in part of this wacky world, people actually work here, even yeah. though that's a ridiculous notion, you know, like just the way that it's designed and the way that it's shot and uh, details like the fact that the elevator has like lots of scratch marks from when they put the crowbar in there and like pry it open. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. all these things lead to this like world being like really rich in being John Malkovich. Yes. And in here, it just I, I just never believed that it was anything other than an alternate reality game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody listening has ever played the video game Bioshock, but it really reminded me of Bioshock, which is this video game about this sort of industrialist way back when who creates this underwater city and it's sort of all art deco-y of that time period. And it's very visually rich and thought out, but very, very empty. And the Jejun Institute sort of reminded me of that, you know, a lot of presentation and really no substance, no heart, no. Well, that's what Jejun means. So there you yes. go. <laughs> um, but boy, that that's an interesting take that the characters might actually be that way for a reason moving forward. We've talked about in the past the shit or get off the pot grab the audience conundrum of TV shows, you know, where they have Uh, a six episode plan to really sink their teeth into what's going on versus the attention span during peak TV. How long are you going to sit with it for it to get in gear? For me, I'm already two episodes in and kind of like kind of failing. And I know the game will change in ways. That's what these games do. You know, they switch gears, they zig, they zag, but I wanted something more. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just one note, personal note on um, the one thing where I stopped believing it was sort of like a, a game that would truly happen to real people in real life is the alleyway curio store. There's a note that's saying, you want anything? Just take it and pay what you want. There's so many good things in there that I would take with me. Nobody <laughs> takes anything. <laughs> It was like yeah. my store, like those kind of stores. I live yes. for those things. It was like and uncommon objects. I'm like, you guys aren't real. Yeah, I, I, I felt like there were there were sparks of wit that were winning, like it, where I was surprised, and like when in the second episode when um, Simone is talking to Bigfoot at the museum, and she's like, "How did you even get in here?" and he shows his membership card, Professor and it says Professor Foot. Foot. So cute. Yeah. But, and all those things at the start of the first episode where he's imagining the experiments yes, that have flyers on, yes. they were super creative and yes. really fun. Yes. And it set, and plus, you know, all, the Richard E. Grant intro mm-hmm. with that super long 17 second pregnated pause at the start yeah. to get to your attention. Yep. It started off really strong and mm-hmm. 
whimsical in that really kind of fun way that like didn't feel as as twee as it does as the episode moves forward. Exactly. But this is the thing, given that at the center of the show is this extremely, as you say, whimsical game, perfect word for it. The whole, the whole of the, of the show to me feels so lugubrious. And I, I, I know that part of it is supposed to be, as, as Dave Chen said, like these characters breaking out of, you know, the strictures of their lives probably and, you know, learning different ways to be. And like, this is part of the process, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But, you know, having AMC already had another show that was about that. And (laughs) um, justice for lodge 49. I'm still mad about it. (laughs) Yeah. I know TV development doesn't work that way, but I am kind of ticked off at the network that gave us this, which seems like it's the spiritual replacement for it. You know, like I know it doesn't work that way, but it's still taking it personal. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to keep watching this because I did watch the documentary and I think, I mean, I think this has heart, but it's not busy, like, telling you how much heart it has. Mm -hmm. It lets moments breathe. I do think it's a little, like, gray tone and lugubrious, like you said, Tara. Mm -hmm. But there's this wonderful moment in the documentary where one of the participants, and, like, in the documentary, it's also not entirely clear who is what and who is in on it. And is this even a documentary? Like, is this just part of the game? which would be fine. Like it's an interesting thought experiment. This one woman is talking about this one, um, like piece of gameplay where they show up with their partners and one has to be blindfolded. And then, then one next to you, like they're all taking hands and she wasn't sure who took her hand, mm-hmm. but she felt very, um, safe and connected to whoever it was. And yeah. she started weeping, remembering that. And I was like, I don't know. There's, there's something, there's something to that. Maybe it's just the mood I'm in today, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it, but I get why people would be like, yeah, I don't have time for that. Well, Dave Chen, give us, give us your last word. Let's close it up. Yeah. I I think this falls into the category of, uh, there's some things that are a lot more fun to actually do in real life than to Mm. watch people do. Mm. Uh, one of those, you know, like getting high, that's an example. I would rather (laughs) get high than watch a lot of people get high. There's like many shows that have people getting high and I'm like, this is boring. But, uh, another thing, uh, watching a bunch of people go on a scavenger hunt. Those are more exciting in person rather than watching people do it. And unfortunately, I don't think the show quite does enough uh, to break out of that constraint of uh, you're just basically watching people go on a scavenger hunt. So I probably am not going to continue after the first two episodes, but uh, I appreciate I I appreciate and respect anyone who, who does continue. Good save. It's time to go around the dial talking about things we're watching on TV lately. First up, Tara Ariana. I am the last person in America to watch Love is Blind on Netflix. Uh, of course, it dropped while we were away on our trip. Uh, I got a lot of tweets about this, not least from Chris Colan, who is the executive producer of the show. He follows me and I vice versa because he is also the executive producer, both of Love is Blind and Married at First Sight, which longtime listeners of this podcast will know <laughs> I used to do a podcast about with uh, Brian Rubenstein. So Love is Blind is this. There's basically a, a, 
a Big Brother type of studio where there's a women's side and a men's side. And then in the middle are these pods. And the pods are like, if you watched Counterpart, it's like the offices where people meet in the middle. Except, oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> except they're like these little tiny, you know, I mean, they are kind of pods. It's like a living room, but all the, it's just a couch in it. And then there's like a screen in the middle where... You can't see through it, but you can hear each other. They must be miked. And so you're having conversations with someone of the opposite sex. Of course, this is an extremely straight, straight show. Um, but you can't see each other. And so the idea is after a certain number of days in the house, I think it was 10 days, you only get to see the person that you decide you you vibe with. If they propose to you, it's always the guy, of course, proposing to the woman because mm. straighty straight, as I said. And then you only get to see them after, like, the day after the proposal happens. So uh, one couple, fucking, <laughs> the proposal happens on day five. It's ridiculous. So, uh, so I saw a lot of people on Twitter who are, like, I guess new to dating reality shows talking about how this is so dystopian. It's like Black Mirror in real life. What is happening? Why blah, 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 blah. Like, wow. where have you been? Exactly. Two things about that. Number one, The Bachelor is equally as dystopian. We're just all used to it because it's been around for 20 fucking years. Number two, Married at First Sight from the same producers is a much wilder <laughs> premise. You have to marry someone without knowing anything about them, including their name. At least these people get to have a conversation first. Um, and saw a lot of also, are straight people okay with regard to this show? Generally, no. However, having watched the first half of a season of this show, and probably that's all I'm going to watch, it brought me to an epiphany of why I'm drifting away from dating shows in general. And here's why. Number one. I've come to the realization, belatedly, that by necessity, everyone on dating shows is extremely average. They are very much middle of the bell curve. You think people on these shows are crazy, and they are in a certain sense. But in general, they're just super dull, boring bowls of oatmeal. So it's hard to care whether any of them finds love with any other of them because <laughs> they're so dull. Like <laughs> on this show... We find out one of the one of the guys is a 28-year-old virgin who, like, otherwise seems, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being a virgin. Of course, there's not at any age. But, like, that's unusual to be an American man who's 28 and a virgin. And after we learn that fact, we never see him again. Like, he doesn't propose to anyone. Like, that's all he's we... He's just gone. Yeah. Well, if you don't get a proposal, only six couples get oh, engaged. Then they're they're gone. Right. Also, it's, one it's of the, a real life the lobster, basically. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, maybe you know, nobody wanted a project. Perhaps there's also <laughs> one of the guys who does get who does make a proposal is this guy Carlton. Um, and he dance. He we don't see him dance, although he proposes to a basketball dancer. Her name is Diamond. Oh. Um, and then after like sometime around when the proposal happens, he's like, I'm really worried because I've had, there's something I haven't told her, which is that it, earlier in my life, I used to also date men. And like the fact that it never came up when they were having conversations is like, OK, I'm just going to say, Carlton, that, you know, if if you're not matter of fact and like, OK, to talk about this with regard to yourself as like just a data point about you, you have some kind of shame issues that you should be dealing with in therapy as opposed to on a reality show. And then he does tell her after they meet and she wildly overreacts and breaks off the engagement. So, you know, are straight people okay? No. Point number two. 
By necessity, everyone on dating shows is fucked up in a fundamental way. <laughs> the best you can hope for is that they're just dumb enough to think that a process like this will work for them. And if they are dumb enough, it might. Like, you know, if the it, the people that get to go on these shows necessarily have these nothing jobs that will allow them to leave for six weeks or something. What? Oh, I was going to say, I don't want to step on what I suspect is your next data point. But yes. Do you, is it that or is it that they're... Uh, need and want for attention over overrides that compunction. More likely they're on a dating show because they have some trauma they're working out here instead of in therapy, or they're just intractable narcissists. So yes, thank you, Dave. Number three, what these TV show producers think is compelling TV and what I think is compelling TV is not the same thing. For example, watching these idiots after they're engaged, like at this resort where they send them all to sitting at dinner, horseback riding, having boring conversations about their dumb jobs. Like, if what is the first filter you would use in a blind speed stating situation? You would go into this pod and you would say, first things first, the only thing I need to know about you, don't even need to know your name, who did you vote for in 2016? <laughs> and... The problem with that in a situation like this is either all of these dummies voted for Trump or none of them have ever voted in their lives because they're too dumb or they think voting is gay. So, you know, all of these dips are like blank robots. If they had any strong convictions or principles or whatever, they would not be in this situation trying to find love or a facsimile thereof. Which brings us back to point one. They are middle of the bell curve maroons. I don't want to spend my life watching them anymore. Exception noted. Married at first sight because three of those five couples this season really hate each other, and I'm here for that. <laughs> okay. Any questions about Love is Blind? That was a lot of high-mindedness <laughs> for dating show watching. Wait, wait so, I should, so I should watch it? Is that the is that the no? <laughs> it's it's really it's really boring. It's so slow. Like I don't know why it's ten episodes. Like this is the five episodes I watched was like one episode of content. Maybe my from my plug. Um, I wrote about Party of Five, uh, the freeform uh, revival that we talked about a few weeks ago on this podcast and how it has continued to be one of the most radical shows on television, which is especially surprising considering that it's for like teens and tweens and how that is amazing and awesome and abolish ice. So you can find that on Primetimer and we will link that in the show notes. Mr. Chen, your turn. I have been watching The Outsider on HBO, uh, and this is the—I think it's going to be a limited series based off of the Stephen King novel, The Outsider. The showrunner is Richard Price, who's written for The Wire as well as The Night Of, and I love this show. I think it's uh, one of the, if not the best show on TV right now, and uh, the reason is because it is this kind of unique combination of— the horror milieu that Stephen King often brings to his work, combined with Richard Price's withering take on the American justice system. And like, it, like if you guys have seen The Night Of, you know, like that was a kind of very uh, pessimistic take on uh, what the American justice system produces, what it results in. And you combine that with like what Stephen King does and you get The Outsider, basically. So it's this like ultra realist take on this supernatural phenomenon. And uh, I think it's also really well uh, acted and directed. Uh, Jason Bateman did the pilot and it's it's kind of this beautiful, gorgeous exercise in how to use extremely de shallow depth of field for virtually the entire show, like every shot 
uh, virtually is like shallow depth of field. So like only one thing is in focus and everything else is out of focus. And it's beautiful. I, I, I really enjoy it. So that's The Outsider. I don't know if any of you are watching this. Are any of you keeping up with this show right now? Uh, we g- didn't get through the uh, first episode. Well, I, we got through it. Then we stopped. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're correct. <laughs> because I doubted the supernatural aspect of it. Uh, so I did some advanced research. And when I learned more about the source material, I'm like, I'm going to be angry at the end of this series. <laughs> so I stopped. I mean, um, I think that's entirely fair. What do you mean you doubted the supernatural aspect, though? Well, what they were setting up, um, I didn't quite believe that it was going the right way. I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, trying to dance, I'm trying to dance yeah. around yes. spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So enough. I looked up the book synopsis, and at the end of it, I'm like, I'm fine with my decision to stay out of the outsider and it wasn't really like it didn't really hook me but it wasn't really because of artistic or production issues i just didn't buy the story going in and going out based on what i've read yeah i can totally understand like and honestly a lot of the show uh has ended up being about people grappling with whether or not they can accept anything supernatural. Um, right. You have Ben Mendelsohn in the show basically playing the Dana Scully character uh, in, <laughs> in the entire thing. And uh, I find it completely fascinating, but totally understood if it's not your cup of tea. And also uh, it's pretty slow as a show goes, like not very much plot occurs in each episode, uh, but uh, I still love it. Yeah. I'm always happy to see Ben Mendelsohn and stuff. He's great. I mean, he plays villains yeah. and sort of marginalized characters really well he's very tortured he's very tortured yes. in this one so if yeah. you want a good tortured ben mendelson performance the outsider is a, a good choice cool uh dave you're a very prolific podcaster uh what do you have to plug uh just two podcasts that i'm doing right now culturally relevant Ooh. is the show uh that tara has guested on before uh i interview an interesting uh, artist uh, filmmaker writer each week, you can find that at culturallyrelevantshow.com or just search on your podcast app for Culturally Relevant. And I'm also doing a podcast recapping the HBO original series Westworld. You can find that at decodingwestworld.com. I do that with Joanna Robinson from Vanity Fair. Excellent. And we'll have all that in our show notes. Sarah D. Bontic. Okay. Teen mom, young and pregnant, <laughs> wrapped up last week, I believe. Uh, Tara... It looks like you're getting caught up. Are you oh, I'm fully caught up. caught up? Yep. Okay. So how, I mean, I don't know how I feel about how everyone ended the season. I feel like um, Ashley should maybe not be on the show anymore. I feel like she's too well adjusted. Like I know there's drama with Barr, but he's a guy who gets eyebrow tattoos. I I think you know we don't really need any more information can i ask a question i think i know the answer but teen mom isn't new cast every year it's following the same people throughout the series correct okay yeah okay i mean people sort of come and go sure it's like housewives right but really not it's not an anthology pregnancy series no no that's 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 16 and pregnant this is but the people cycling in and out is something that's only happened in like the last couple of years the the teen mom teen mom and teen mom too those those casts were in place like pretty solidly for most of the first are several, some of them no longer seasons. teens most Probably. of them are no longer yeah teens. right okay yeah. sorry Sarah continue proceed Sarah no problem um but I, I thought I'm glad that I stuck with it for the second season um I th- I thought that it was as painful as it was to watch 
some of these moms, especially um, new additions this season, Rachel and Kaya. Poor Kaya, like watching her clinging to this relationship with Tiasia, who was just put in the position of like, we should not be together and I have to be mean to you for in order for you to get it. And when yeah. even, <laughs> even Kaya's mom is like, Pl- girl, please drop it. Yeah. And she's like, so depressed in the finale. I mean, like that was hard to watch, but I think it was also like, you know, you have to remember that whenever you're feeling frustrated with these girls, they're, they're children, they're children. But then the, Oh my God, the Rachel storyline, like (gasps) it's, it's so interesting because these subjects, um, generally like they're they're doing a lot of things that i don't necessarily like i wouldn't make the same choice but there is definitely usually a sea change once the baby comes and has been in their lives for a while where there is a maturity that settles on them whether they are seeking that out or not not rachel rachel's like i wonder what else is going on with Rachel possibly from a substance involvement standpoint, mm. which could even have been like her mother having substances in her system while pregnant with Rachel. Mm. But like this second, you know, she gets pregnant again and you, the audience member are forced to grapple with some, some rather ugly uh, <laughs> feelings about that and then that takes a turn and she's she is the one where i kind of feel like th- like this is literally a disaster and someone n- needs to step in and i don't know who yeah i mean what were you like what were your feelings sort of watching the end of this season i i agree i certainly agree about rachel like i i don't know as is so often the case with these girls like the the financial stuff is so rough and you just think like the their only hope at this point is staying on the show and making like whatever money NPV is going to pay them because it's not inconsiderable. And the longer they stay yeah. on the show, the more they get paid. But at the same time, it's like I don't that's clearly not healthy for her at all. And yeah. her and her in particular, like she's the youngest. She's only 17 now. And like she's getting she was pregnant for the second time when her first child was like 28 weeks old it's like oh god (laughs) like brutal just like a you know the cycling through the like and she refuses to find out she refuses to have a paternity test Mm -hmm. and her rationale is like so 16 years old yeah she's like i just don't want to have to deal with him i'm like you you should have to deal with him because you like he should be responsible right fiscally yes for his child's granted he's 16 too and whatever but i'm wondering if they can't put something in her contract that's like you have to do something you have to get your ged you have to get your driver's license like i don't i don't think i understand what she does all day yeah except obsess over her boyfriends which is like you have a human who depends on you Mm mm-hmm and this, like the situation is that good. And then there was that whole storyline with her sister, maybe signing over custody to their mom. And then that was dropped. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah it's grim. Yeah. it It's grim. And yet I really respect that 
MTV just like wades in there mm-hmm. with this. Well, because it's I feel like it's important, as I always say, when we talk about this, like to to tell the truthful story, because, you know, I think too many girls have this this romantic idea of like, I'm going to have my baby and then there will always be someone who will love me. And it's like, well, yes, but also no, no. Yeah. And also, if the one that you want to always love you is the child's other parent, then Mm. first of all, oh dear. And second of all, if that stops being true, you're still stuck with that person. See Stefan. Oh my God. Yeah. Dave has a thought. Uh, Just speaking of things that need to be plugged up, do you have any plugs? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Wow. That was, uh, that was a thing of beauty and art. Um, much like the thing I have to plug, plug, not really, but, uh, I am doing a, a regular column on Prime Timer that has been variously called True Crimer, True Crime Timer. I think they settled on True Crime Tuesday. Anyway, um, speaking of grim, my latest subject is the trials of Gabriel Fernandez, which is worthwhile, but really tough. And if you decided you couldn't take it, you're probably right. Uh, mm. But my column on that is up at primetimer.com right now, and I will link it in the show notes. So I watched a show called A French Village, and this was recommended by our next door neighbor prior to us going on a trip. So I loaded up the iPad with a few episodes. This is a show that's been running in France for like a billion years. It's about a small village under German occupation during World War II. So I thought what I was getting into was sort of like an historical drama around resistance and occupation, sort of like uh, of a band of brothers reality level. What we got was actually really surprising because um, it's sort of like a combination of Call the Midwife and a throwback ensemble cast show like St. Elsewhere or something from that era. But it's got this Coronation Street soapy quality to it and like a little Downton Abbey class disparity stuff going on to all in one show. It's not good, but it's like very watchable. <laughs> it's like one of those shows. You watched two. I did watch two so far. And there's like so many fucking characters from the get go that you like you instantly have somebody to like and somebody to fucking hate. And like that one dumb person that you're like, oh, just somebody drop a bomb on uh, them already. Daisy. Daisy. That's the French Daisy. She is. There's a character that basically is a French Daisy. She is a <laughs> school teacher or helper that gets kids killed on a field trip. Jesus. Yeah. At the, at the, like <laughs> Daisy Wood. Yeah, Jesus. Daisy Wood. <laughs> um, so if any of that sounded up your alley, uh, if any part of that uh, uh, formula sounded up your alley, it's on Amazon Prime. It's not good, but watchable. That is my review. Okay. Um, Saturday afternoon, your mom comes over. You got nothing else to do. <laughs> throw on a French village. <laughs> Crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about is uh, me and Tara are back from our trip. We went to Kenya for a safari. Thank you very much, Mr. and Mrs. Tara's mom and dad. And Do you know sp- my last name? No. <laughs> the same as theirs. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and we stayed in Nairobi for a couple of days before we went on safari. And you're in the hotel. And when I say you're in the hotel, you are in the hotel because everything is like this walled garden in there. Basically couldn't leave. Watching a lot of TV, the movie network in East Africa, and I think it extends up to the Middle East or near, is M Network. And we had three channels. We had M Premiere, we had M Action, and M Action Plus. 
If you've ever wondered when watching some really bad middle of the road TV show or movie, why is this being made? How do they make money on this? Who the hell's watching this? Yeah. I'm here to tell you it's East Africa. Yeah. So many shows and programs like Death Al Dente Hallmark mystery series. Mm-hmm. They we watched a a Lori Laughlin like Hallmark mysteries gar, the garage yep. store whatever garage sale mysteries was on. Yep. She's not disgraced in East Africa. Oh. FYI, <laughs> it's like fifteen percent almost new stuff. Like we saw John Wick two and not the very last but second to last Avengers movie. Yep, Infinity War. Yep, yeah, part yeah. Um, and then they have a couple current things like Instant Family was on. That's uh, from last Lone year. Star nine one one Lone Star. Well, we was, that didn't actually air, but no, we, saw we didn't see it, it. But it was on yes. somewhere. The Resident, all the Chicago shows, Young from Sheldon. on NBC. Yeah, but then Young like Sheldon. everything else is like this middle of the road movies and TV series yeah. and mystery solved. Like even when I <laughs> lived in Canada, I worked for this production company up there, and they would make all these shows. I'm like. I I live in Canada. I've never heard of these shows. And it's all just international sales because yeah. it's just like we got all this to fill and uh, here we go. These are the cheap things to fill, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are like, here's this really bad movie made cheaply with a lot of government grants starring one actors who name you know, but is no longer getting real movie roles, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Cuba Gooding Jr. Right. That sort of thing. Yes. In in Australia. Like this yeah. clearly made for Australian television. Yeah. Canadian Australian production mm-hmm. uh, t- made for TV movie starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and others. Yes. Some made. broad with the skinniest eyebrows you ever saw. Yeah. And then like every co-produced Chinese Sylvester Stallone movie made in the past 15 years is on heavy rotation. Oh, yeah. Sarah, we saw the Escape Plan sequel that Vincent Young is in. Oh. That was on. Yay! <laughs> so you could take the whole t- trip as a tax write off now. Yeah, nice. Exactly. Yes, we also spent one night in Dubai because we had a 13 hour layover and stayed at the Dubai International Hotel at the airport, which was very cool. And while we, when we checked into our airport, we found the Comedy Channel. There was more offerings there. And the show that was airing at the time that we checked in was Joey. <laughs> Oh, Friends spinoff. It still airs in Dubai. And the next morning, because we woke up super duper early because we were really jet lagged, they were showing the final season of Ally McBeal, the really weird one that Dame Edna was on for some reason. So, again, oh. these are the shows that live on forever in weird overseas syndication. I remember when I went to visit my parents in Pakistan years and years ago, they were still airing the James Woods one season drama with Jerry Ryan called Shark. Oh, Shark. Where he was oh, a yeah. lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was still on. So, yeah. yeah. So if you miss those shows and you can't get them anywhere else, get a ticket, (laughs) fly to Nairobi, and you're all set. Dear Mr. President, there are too many states nowadays. Please eliminate three. I am not a crackpot. I am not a crackpot, but transparent computer screens should not be the aspirational choice of TV makers (laughs) and also, of course, movie makers. Transparent screens have a role in the real world. They are what we call a heads-up display, such as shining a computer uh, readout on an airplane fighter cockpit so you can see this and that, information while you're driving, that kind of thing, heads-up display, or other AR, 
you know, like Google Glasses, that kind of stuff, where you want information overlaid on the real world. Watching Picard, everything at Picard now, like remember, remember Next Generation? Everything was like a monitor, you know, at hands ready. And there were <laughs> now they're all holograms that float near them and they're transparent. On Discovery also. You can see through them. It is not a good idea to be able to see through a computer monitor. If I had a monitor right here with a whole bunch of text and I was staring at it, I would see Tara's face through it as we sit across from each other on this podcast studio table. And I wouldn't be able to read anything. It doesn't work that way. Also, what if you're outside? It's even worse because now you've got a backlit screen, sun shining on it like crazy. It's bad enough when we go with our just regular phones. Number one, ones that don't have a back to shield. And speaking of that, in the future, when we do have all these transparent monitors and cell phones... The most popular app is going to be this like video or photography app that simply just in real time mirror flips <laughs> whatever you're shooting so that you can just see the back of anybody's phone and see exactly what they're doing because apparently that's what everybody wants in the future. So I get it looks cool and I get that you can see through it to see the face no matter what angle you're doing. But there's also lots of ways to move the camera and see their face without having a really stupid, ill-conceived piece of technology. Uh, so... Transparent computer screens, yes. Heads-up display, yes. AR, no computer monitors and cell phones. They just really don't make sense from a uh, usability perspective. Now, I understand Mr. Dave Chen may have other thoughts on this. <laughs> oh, well, I, I hadn't heard the entire argument. And uh, now that I have, I say, uh, very well argued, sir. I think one thing that you might miss, though, David, is that, uh, you know, we've lost so much serendipity. Uh, in today's day and age with our technology, like when you're reading something on your phone or your tablet or whatever, um, and you, you can no longer, I, I know, I know, I have friends who got married, uh, like eventually got married because they met because one of them was reading something that the other person liked, you know, on the subway. And uh, tra transparent screens would allow that to happen again. I think you're, that's like the one oh, plus I side see. that you kind of miss. Oh, that's sweet. So transparent screens are reality. <laughs> Tinder out of business. That's what you're saying. <laughs> 100%. 100%. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E. 
N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now. Yes, indeed, it is time for the canon. Submitting this week is our guest, Dave Chen. Take it away, Dave. Hello, everyone. So for today's uh, canon entry, I am submitting for you Succession Season 1, Episode 10, entitled Nobody Is Ever Missing. Of course, Tara and I host a Succession recap podcast. This is all part of my stealth campaign to promote that podcast, (laughs) uh, appearing on the show to talk about Succession. (laughs) Um, so season one, episode 10, let's talk a little bit about where, what, what the state of things is in succession season one, episode 10. For those who are not familiar, succession is about the Roy family led by patriarch Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, who created a multinational conglomerate called Waystar Royco. All of his children have, have at various times jockeyed for position and stature in relation to a ship to the company, including Siobhan or Shiv for short, played by Sarah Snook, Connor, played by Alan Ruck. Roman, played by Kieran Culkin, and most or perhaps least of all, Kendall Roy, played by Jeremy Strong. Of all of Logan's children, it's Kendall who seems most likely to succeed Logan. He's the one who wants it most, and he's already risen in the ranks of Waystar Royco itself, having worked there for many years. In the first few episodes of season one, Logan has a health scare. For a while, it seems like Kendall might become his permanent successor, but Logan quickly recovers and reasserts power only in Logan's newly weakened physical state. Kendall's unsure if Logan should even be running the company at all. So he stages a coup attempt that fails spectacularly in episode six of the show, Which Side Are You On? That is also a brilliant episode. I almost submitted that one instead. But all that brings us to the season finale, season one, episode 10. Shiv is getting married to Tom Wamsgams, played by Matthew McFadden. Quick note on Tom Wamsgams. He's one of the most incredible characters ever devised. (laughs) He doesn't come from wealth. And as a result, he has a massive chip on his shoulder, which manifests itself occasionally in amusing ways. And in an undying adulation for Shiv that borders on humiliating. Uh, The family has convened at a castle in England for the wedding festivities, but some unfortunate timing is afoot because after having failed in his first coup attempt, Kendall has finally marshaled the private equity resources to sink his father for good. He's going to execute what's called a bear hug, which is an offer to acquire the company that is so good that basically it would be unethical for Logan to decline it. In the aftermath, Kendall would be the new CEO. However, Kendall accidentally blabbed about the plan, and so the timeline of the bear hug was accelerated. So Kendall needs to deliver the critical documents to Logan on this the day of his daughter's wedding. So Kendall delivers the documents, and when confronted face-to-face with his treachery, he folds faster than Superman on laundry day. Let's hear clip one. (laughs) You're very tough, and so am I as your son. So I think uh, this is just the way it has to be with us. I'm, I'm not sorry for what I'm doing, which is correct, but I... I'm sorry for how it makes you feel. And uh, I'm sorry it had to be today. It was out of my hands. Here. No. Fuck off. (laughs) Do you even know what you're doing this for? Ideas. I I have, you know, I've wanted to to do things. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. To save the company and and, and, uh, do... Just uh, do do things that are... You see, you can't even fucking say it. I can say it. Then say it. Do some good things. Do good things. Be a fucking nurse. 
That is a great scene that captures the dynamic between these characters. You can sense Logan Roy's seething resentment while also understanding precisely how weak Kendall is. Also, kind of great to see Logan throw the letter into the toilet, then immediately try to retrieve it once Kendall's out of the room. It just shows how much of his act is pure posturing. So Kendall finds the meeting so intense, he has to do some cocaine with his friend Stewie to take the edge off, which is sad because he's basically in the process of relapsing during the entire second half of the season. But each of the Roy children has a storyline that plays out in this day. For the past few episodes, Roman has been bragging about how he's been organizing a special satellite launch and timing it to happen on the day of Shiv's wedding. Finally, after much buildup during the post-wedding cocktail hour, Roman goes into the bathroom to watch the launch on his phone, only to see the satellite explode into smithereens. Without saying a word, he quietly puts the phone into his pocket and then he washes his hands, symbolism, and plays dumb with wedding guests when he's asked about it. It's an amazing moment that reinforces Roman's incompetence, but also his vanity, as he will not admit that he messed up. Side note, by the way, I really appreciate how this episode begins after the wedding ceremony and mm-hmm. starts during the cocktail hour and reception. Most wedding ceremonies in real life are pretty boring, and I think this episode <laughs> does a good job of capturing how most of the drama at actual weddings takes place like in the moments between the big moments, you know, rather than the big moments that you'd expect at a wedding. Totally. So. Uh, One of those in-between moments happens when Connor encounters Shiv's boss, Gil Evis, who is a Bernie Sanders-esque politician running for president. In this exchange, Connor does a great job of summarizing the Republican Party's response to Bernie Sanders. Clip two, please. Hey, Senator Evis. Connor Roy. Huge skeptic. Massive skeptic. Good to know. Yeah. Socialism, huh? Wow. I got a big problem with you and everything you stand for, my friend. Hi, baby. (laughs) Hey, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Listen, I look at you and I see Weimar. I see hyperinflation. I mean, I look at your face and, no offense, but I see dead babies. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's very interesting. Uh, I can't say I agree, but... um, Look, would you excuse me for a minute? Oh, yeah. Great to joust a little, Senator. Yeah. That's the best he can do? Connor, he's going to be the next president. Really? I just wiped the floor with him in a debate. He buckled under intellectual scrutiny. He was lucky that wasn't televised. Yeah. So some real intellectual rigor there. Uh, Connor feels so good about this conversation, he decides right there that he's going to run for president of the United States himself. Later, it's time for the wedding speeches, and several characters deliver speeches that are really illustrative of who they are. Logan gives a fairly traditional speech about the importance of family while basically subtweeting Kendall. Uh, Tom goes wild with his love for his new wife, Shiv, and Shiv gives a half-hearted speech about how important Tom has been to her. You see, Shiv, throughout the season, has basically been cheating on Tom, all while insisting the wedding go forward. In truth, she isn't ready for a long-term commitment, but in a private moment after the wedding, Shiv finally reveals what's been happening. Let's hear from clip three. I just think I'm just... I'm just not sure I'm a good fit for it. A monogamous marriage. Right. Okay. Is it okay? I mean, is that okay to say to you? Of course. Yeah, I kind of wish. I guess maybe we talked about this before our wedding night. Yeah. Me too. I just think, you know, I was in such a total mess when. When we hooked up, when I needed you so much, it was in a very bad way. And we've got the business angle that works. We're good on that. We, we have a plan. Uh-huh. But in terms of the relationship, I'm just 
wondering if there's an opportunity for something different from the whole box set death march. The box set death march? Yeah. You know, just a different shape of relationship. It could be exciting. Right. Maybe, I guess, yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, you know, because we've torn everything else down, right? Love is the last fridge magnet left. Right. I actually think the audio-only version of the scene does an even better job of illustrating how not on board Tom is for any of this. You can just hear, like, the deadness in his voice there. Uh, It's an excruciating scene because Shiv has, in her selfishness, waited until the last possible minute to give this news to Tom. And Tom has no choice but to relent because that's the kind of guy Tom is. And also the power imbalance between them is massive. While Tom does take the opportunity to get rid of Shiv's side piece, Nate, in a way that will send the biggest message possible, we still get the sense that maybe the marital problems aren't over for these two quite yet. Back at the wedding reception, Roman learns that no one has died in the rocket explosion, just a few people who lost some thumbs, so he celebrates by telling an extremely (laughs) poor taste this guy joke. And all the Roy children confront Kendall, excoriating him for executing this bear hug, on this, the day of Shiv's wedding, Logan comes in towards the end and rips into his son in the most withering terms possible. Let's hear from clip four. So you don't think that you owe us an explanation? I don't owe you anything. No. What have you had your entire life that I didn't give you? I'm not getting into it. I'm doing this thing, okay? I don't owe you fucking anything. I blame myself. I spoiled you, and now you're fucked. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're a hothouse flower. That you're nothing. You're curdled cream. Maybe, maybe you should write a book or collect sports cars or something. But for the world, nah. I'm sorry. You're not made for it. You can't see this because it's the audio version of that scene. But while this is happening, all the other Roy children are just sitting by and watching with sadness. You get the sense that this isn't the first time such a confrontation has occurred that they've witnessed. Uh, Kendall, fresh off another chewing out, decides he needs to find some coke. He encounters his cousin Greg on his way out of the party, only to find himself being blackmailed by Greg, uh, which Kendall respects, but he still needs to find some coke. Um, The Greg arc this season has been really interesting because he's been very painfully inept and awkward throughout the whole season. But in this final episode shows that he's learned a thing or two from the Roy's about being corrupt. And I think the scene is a great testament to the Roy's corrupting influence. So anyway, Kendall finally locates a waiter that might have coke. In fact, he was fired earlier after Logan was displeased with his performance. And he asks the waiter for some quote unquote powder. The waiter obliges. But when they start doing drugs, Kendall is disappointed to realize that the waiter thought he meant ketamine when Kendall was actually looking for cocaine. So to paraphrase the rest of development, and that's why... You never use euphemisms when talking about drugs. (laughs) So Kendall offers to drive to a second location to get the cocaine. But since he's terrible at stick shift, he's not paying attention when a deer appears in the road and they run off into a river. Kendall escapes, but the waiter does not. Kendall is stunned. He runs back to the wedding. There's a spectacular shot of him trying to get back to his room, walking through like a marsh or a swamp of some kind, while fireworks illuminate him in the background. It's a great visual metaphor for how the Roys wallow in filth while surrounded by the trappings of wealth. 
Anyway, Kendall breaks into his room, cleans off, tries to forget the whole thing. Then he returns to the reception to dance the night away. Side note, usually it bothers me when there are needle drops in a show or a movie that really so closely indicate the themes of the work. But I think the the music in this episode works great because uh, in these wedding reception scenes, they're all extremely plausible wedding DJ choices. Uh, Uptown Girl plays while Tom is ejecting Nate from the wedding. Mm-hmm. And Shiv is the Uptown Girl. Uh, and later, when Kendall dances with his kids after the car accident, we hear Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, an elemental expression of longing that Kendall has in that moment after committing a horrible crime. The next morning, Kendall wakes up and is reminded of the night before by a cut on his wrist. He heads to breakfast and discovers that the waiter has died. Uh, and then he, Kendall is called into a meeting with his father where they have one final conversation. It becomes clear that Logan has learned everything that went down the previous night and is going to use it as leverage against Kendall. Let's hear from clip five. This could be the defining moment of your life. It'd eat everything. A rich kid kills a boy. You'd never be anything else. Or, you know, it could be what it should be. Nothing at all. A sad little detail at a lovely wedding where father and son are reconciled. (laughs) You're my boy. You're my number one boy. Jeremy Strong's performance as Kendall is so heartbreaking in that scene. He can't even bring himself to confess the truth. He is just totally, completely, and utterly broken by the circumstances. And that's the end of the episode. So why this episode for the canon? First of all, it builds on plot threads and themes that have been happening throughout the season, including the casual flaunting of wealth, the fracturing of relationships in this big family, and the dismissal of lives of lower class people as somehow worthless. It features a ton of great one-liners, which is something that show creator Jesse Armstrong is known for. And it's the culmination of Kendall Roy's first season arc in which he repeatedly tries to escape from under the shadow of his father, but ultimately discovers that escape is impossible. It's tragic. It's Shakespearean. And I think it deserves to be inducted into the canon. I rest my case. I don't know if I should go first or last. Maybe you should go last because yeah. you're sort of in the bag for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I can go first for sure. a change. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me just first, like, just run down some bits that I thought were great. The stammering failure of the father-son confrontation when he hands him the papers was <sighs> so cringy and felt so real that I, like, it was one of those through-the-fingers scenes. It was just like, yeah. oh, no, it's he happening. Was... He can't handle it. <laughs> he was so, so confident, but now he's crumbling under his, you know, his father's withering gaze. It was like, oh, take me out of here. Yeah, Dave was cringing just listening to it again yeah. <laughs> while, while doing this. Yeah, uh, so that was great. Everything to do with the rocket launch failure was fantastic from the streaming video reaction when it blows up the denial, you know, sticking it into his jacket, washing his hands and just denying, you know, yeah, everything went great. We're great. You know? <laughs> um, and then when he talks to the in-house counsel about, uh, so, you know, uh, there might be some emails where I obviously rushed it and uh, I can't deny it. And uh, he's just freaking out. The lawyer's like, fuck. And then, of course, at the end, as Dave says, with the uh, the whole, well, it turns out just a couple guys lost a thumb, maybe an arm, maybe they can attach it. We'll see. And he's all happy with the thumbs up thing. <laughs> Everything to do with that, I thoroughly enjoyed. 
And then the, um, I was laughing at the complete like doofusness of Connor's presidential destiny epiphany. <laughs> and then I kind of remembered where we are in 2020. <laughs> and I felt bad about everything. It was just like, oh, oh no. So we talked about, excuse me, we talked about Succession when it first came out and I was sort of down on the pilot. I feel like in the finale of the first season, there's this comedic darkness and it's really dark here that I don't recall or maybe didn't attach myself to in the pilot. There's the obvious things like, you know, the thumb bits and generally a lot of moments of bluntness around class disparity, uh, you know, with this, with the server who eventually buys it in the pond, uh, power dynamics, corporate skullduggery that works here for me, um, with this committed darkness, um, that, as I said to Tara, when, after we watched it, that I feel like Avenue five was trucks in a lot of those same themes just didn't make click very different points on the, dark comedy to drama spectrum, but I think they're both on it. And this succession episode nails it in such a way that it made me realize in stark relief, just how much, uh, for me, Avenue five, uh, didn't my only knock against this episode. And it's not actually a small one. Um, is the whole Deus ex machina of the pond and mm. the death of the server. You know, the end result, family blackmail is quite appropriate for the show, as I understand it. And it's very satisfying to see rich people screw each other. But I kind of do wish they had gotten to the same place without it feeling quite so convenient. Mm. And yes, I know history provides some examples of rich and powerful people leaving bodies behind in car wrecks, um, in ponds. <laughs> but um, I found this a little easy. And I kind of just wish they figured out another way to do it so like it's not enough to stop me from recommending this episode or keep it away from the canon but that would have been my one note on the teleplay if i had the opportunity as a seasoned tv writer to have input on it yes sir. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say I'll, i will have some comment on that i can give some context on that when it's my turn okay um so i really enjoyed this episode i think the most important thing even more so than my canon vote tara has been pestering me to watch this since she and Dave started the Sweet Smell of Succession podcast. And this episode has pushed me over the hump yeah! of my reaction to the pilot. So I give in to our Ariano, Hooray! last name Ariano. And, Mission uh, accomplished. Yeah. So I hope everybody's happy. Uh, Sarah Your check is in the mail, Dave. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not a Succession watcher either. And uh, as listeners know when it comes to canon submissions that are sort of well-regarded, but I'm not familiar. One of my uh, contextual criteria is, do I want to keep watching this or do I want to go back and start watching this from the beginning? And I do. I, I feel like the things that I was hearing about succession when it started were like, this is just too poisonously off putting a group of people to spend time with. Um, but by the time it got to this episode, I think this is where a lot of people got on board. Um, as far as the parallels to the Kennedys or the Murdochs or the Trumps or whoever, um, I, I feel like a lot of therapy is being had in the writer's room about the 
toxins of like nepotism and American royalty and Ted Kennedy, the man, the myth, the especially strong swimmer and like <laughs> all of that. But I'm, I'm kind of here for it. Like this cast is uh, amazing. Like that Jay Smith Cameron is like, like just the sort of little fingertip of the, of the high five that is this cast is <laughs> really says something. And Oh my God, Alan Ruck, no vanity. Like <laughs> these are the roles that he keeps getting. He's just a schmuck. I think it started with Cameron continued through speed and here he is. And uh, he makes a nice living and good for him. Uh, but yeah, I'm interested to hear what uh, you Tara, who have marinated in this on sweet smell succession have to say about the, you know, the Kennedy parallel and are, you know, are we supposed to feel uh, like, what are we supposed to feel? Because I thought that this speech in the last clip um, was like very elegantly, sparely written mm-hmm. and well done by Brian Cox. And then he's like, you know, you're like, you're my number one boy. Like, well, now he is. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's where you want him. Right. And now that's where he is. Like the pole position is where you can see him. So there's, I don't know. It has this like Sopranos feel of like, you know, there are protagonists, but pro, I don't know. So it's, it's an interesting prospect and I'm looking forward to watching the show and contemplating this further. Tara, take us home. Dave had, Dave had one more. Comment. I just wanted to say, you know, speaking to your point that, Everybody on the show is terrible, kind of like The Sopranos. I I think a lot of TV falls into the trap of we have to have somebody good, somebody relatable, without realizing that even if you have a room full of assholes, they do relatable things. And if they're all drawn really well, you'll find something to attach to. It doesn't mean you're going to have good feelings, you know, and warm and fuzzies about them, but it's still compelling TV, right? So I think the oh, yeah. Sopranos comparison is very apt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're horrible, but at least they're clever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so a, a few quick thoughts right off the top. Roman, Kieran Culkin, so funny. And normally what is what he does is, that is funny is he's a very verbal character. He talks really fast. He gets a lot of the great one-liners. But what he does in this episode... <laughs> I mean, the silent take of his reaction to the rocket, like, is so obviously this is this is an, an audio medium. We can't really communicate it, but you have to see. But to paint a visual, yes. he doesn't do it. But I got the same vibe as Homer disappearing into the yeah. bushes at Flanders. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's it's very it's very elegant. And it just really proves like he earned that Golden Globe nomination. He's very, very good in this role. Um Dave Chen well knows how much I hate the Connor presidential campaign storyline. I regret to say it continues in season two. I forgot that it kicked off in this episode. And so the whole, um, like this was its peak truly, I think. Oh yes. Well, his, his whole like debate me Twitter nonsense, Ben Shapiro bullshit with Gil in this episode is like, yeah, this is, this is Connor in a nutshell. (laughs) Um, although uh, so is him threatening to like pull his pants down to take a shit if they won't let Willa be in the group photos, like the Connor, good Lord. But, um, in terms of, you know, the server's death being a, a deus ex machina or, you know, 
circling back to what Dave Chen said in his presentation about the Roy's wallowing in filth and the larger question about relatability in 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 this, uh, you know, one of the things that I didn't really click with when we watched the premiere the first time and didn't get until the second time through is that this is a very, very dark comedy and that the norm of this satire is not any of the main characters. It's always the help. And what who is defined as the help in in any given scene or episode, you know, changes. Sometimes Jerry is the help. <laughs> sometimes, you know, sometimes it's Carl or like the various, you know, uh, Royco board members here. Obviously, the help is like the waiter. So there's always somebody to paint. In stark relief. Right. The right. point is, yes. And and there's lots of scenes in the second season, too, where, like, you know, we're introduced to a ni- the nice, like, the liberal billionaire family, and we're supposed to think they're better, and they're also horrible to their help What also. with their air ballooning and whatnot. <laughs> exactly. They might have been in a, a balloon in that episode, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> what happened to that? What happened to billionaires and ballooning? It was so hot for a while. No. But... My point being that that this this is also this is a plot thread that's that starts in season one and runs through season two. The idea of what we heard Logan say in that final speech, which is to when what he tells Kendall, which is this could be the defining moment of your life or it could be what it should be. Nothing at all. And this this idea of like, what is a person to a billionaire? Like, what do they regard as a person <laughs> on a base level? To the, to the degree when this is a slight spoiler for season two, but when the, they've, they refer several times in this episode to what's going on with the cruise ships, this whole scandal that's being covered up and that they actually have a code on the cruise ships for, you know, when someone gets abused or falls off a ship or whatever gets killed or something. And the code is NRPI for no real person involved. And that means like, it's a migrant worker or it's, you know, whatever. It's like someone, wow. someone right. that is not, that is not going to be in a position for their people to make a fuss about it, you know? And so to me, like, this is, this is what you, when you're watching succession, you have to watch the people in the fringes. Like you see in these, in the, the sort of interstitial scenes of like people setting things up, like people putting out plates of shellfish or whatever. Like these are not, to me, there's, that's not an accident. Like these are the, and, and sometimes someone actually gets a line like the waiter and sometimes they don't. So my point is the waiter's death is not a deus ex machina. Kendall's, Kendall's falling off the wagon has been telegraphed throughout season one. It's like been a, a, an ongoing story. And what I didn't want to say while this scene was happening, because it would kind of tip where it was going, what I didn't want to tell you mm-hmm. was we've never seen Kendall drive. Like zero times right. have we seen right. him drive in on the show prior to the scene. Like it, Dave Chen said in his presentation, he has a trouble with the stick shift. I, I just think he hasn't driven any car of any kind. I mean, he says he's more comfortable than automatic evidence. We have none. So like, yeah. you know, this, this is, this is hubris and it's not a deus ex machina it's it this is a tr- this is a tragic moment in the like shakespearean sense of mm-hmm. him well they have the whole exchange don't they yeah where well, he's he like says, i'm he rich says, as fuck and i'm used to being driven everywhere exactly yeah. yes he, yeah. right so this is the, yeah it's not a it's not a convenient moment this is his his hubris I understand all the pieces being put into place yes. for that to happen and for him to have a downfall in front of his family and his right. father I just thought the mechanics of getting there right. were easy. I get it. But I'm, I'm just saying like in a, in a 
in a tragic like sure. Shakespearean no, no, sense. This is this yes. is how a tragedy is constructed. I Someone's... understand how they painting it. Uh, if they could use a different color, fair I'd be enough. Fine with it. <laughs> I'm just saying he created the conditions for yeah. his own downfall no, through it. his. And again, crime. like I said, I it was n- yeah. not no, I get not it. close to 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 making me not want to vote for it. I just that right. was my one mark. Anyway, I mean, I think to greater or lesser degrees, like it's obvious that the help is who you watch on Succession. And this is this is uh, one of the best examples where it, like it's the most obvious. Um, and I don't mean obvious in a bad way. I just right. mean it's they make it the most clear. Wasn't the pilot, didn't they like fill the baseball team with like house help and yes. stuff like that? Yeah. Right. And there's also another incident where like we, we see um, Colin, Logan's fixer guy, like giving the waiter a big fat envelope of money. Like he does that. Yeah. Uh, in that episode. He's got a pile too. of them in his back pocket. No doubt. Yeah, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a great show. This is a great episode and an excellent presentation, Dave. Thank you. If um, you could sum this up in one sentence that you probably never say, <laughs> what would that be? <laughs> well, there is a villain here, Dave. Huh? That villain is capitalism. I see. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, let's put succession uh, finale of season one to a vote. I will say yay. Sarah D. Bunting. I will also say yay. Tar Ariana. Yay. That means... Succession. Season 1, Episode 10, Nobody is Ever Missing. You are hereby inducted into the Extra Hawker Cannon. Americans love a winner. Yup. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. It's time for winner and loser of the week. Sarah has the winner. I do. It is Alex Trebek, who is now the namesake of a wing of an L.A. homeless shelter after he made a six-figure donation to said shelter. Um, He should really be the namesake of a lot of things, like elementary schools that are currently named after that worthless piece of shit, Warren Harding. But uh, this is a start. Good for you, Alex. Loser League? Um... Two disgraced perverts. First, <laughs> Timothy Hutton, star of uh, Fox's uh, Almost Family, which was already on the bubble, uh, probably going to get canceled. It had been moved to Saturday nights, but now definitely canceled after a hugely detailed and well-reported story. Co-authored, I know, by Kate Arthur, a uh, friend of, well, not of the pod, friend of me, uh, in Variety, uh, about him having raped a 14-year-old girl in 1983. Yikes. Uh, I did not follow that, know that story. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And also Chris Matthews, who um, has been recently accused of sexual harassment by a journalist, but also has been like just really... Going off the deep end. Going wild yeah. with some extremely off-color analogies about, you know, Nazis and so forth with regard to... A certain presidential candidate whose family was killed in the Holocaust. So he opened his show, uh, as you hear this two nights ago, by announcing he, on the air that he was retiring. So bye bye. You will not be. And missed. then he retired yeah. in yeah. the middle of the show. Uh huh. Yeah. They came back. Kornacki's like, I, I, uh, I don't have a telestrator. Help me. <laughs> Um, speaking about, uh, 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 do you know what time it is? <laughs> it's good time. <laughs> Yay! 
Yes, it is time to play a game time. This is the second game time of the season. Season scores are Sarah D. Bunting, one point. Everybody else, zero. I also have a correction to the last game. Apparently, Sarah should have won by more because, as was pointed out, and I did not go back to listen, but I trust the the listener who pointed this out on Twitter that apparently in one of the equalizer answers, I said Diane Cannon when I met, said it should have been Diane Carroll. Yeah. So Sarah's victory is even more impressive than we gave her credit for. She did, of course, still win regardless of my equalizer win. But sorry, Sarah, that uh, that was marked wrong. Eh, I had heard that and was like, eh, I know who she meant. So who cares? <laughs> also, I won. All right. Well, uh, today, folks, we are playing They Get Around from Mark Grinolds, who earns himself an extra credit topic. Mark writes. This game will test your knowledge of TV love interests and the actors who have played them. You will start off with two character names from two different shows, and your job is to tell me the name of the one actor who played love interests to both. Okay. Uh, okay. If you guess incorrectly, that's not the end of things. I will give you a third character that is in the mix that follows that pattern. Okay. Third character okay. from another show. Also a love interest to this play by this one actor. Okay. If you still don't know the answer, <laughs> I will give you the character name this answer actor had played. Okay. All right. So I know that's a lot of information. Yep. And it's one of those games where the sooner in the process you answer it, the more points you get. Three, two, one, based on how many clues you have. Got right? it. All right. So here's an example. I'll go through the whole thing so everybody understands it. So save your answers till the end. Okay. Fraser mm. Crane of Fraser mm -hmm. and Sam Seaborn of the West Wing would be your first hint. Okay. Nobody knows the answer. So I'm going to give you that third <laughs> character. That's Gregory House of House. And you're like, hmm, Fraser, Sam Seaborn, House. I still don't know because I've never watched TV before. Give me another hint. <laughs> so the actor who played love interest to all those characters also played Dr. Lisa Cuddy on House. So now you would say the answer is... Lisa Edelstein. That is the actor in question. So three, two, one, that's the point system. The earlier you answer, the more points you get. You can answer once on every section of the process without penalty. So mm -hmm. you get one guess at each one. Right. So I think this game will be decided on how soon you could answer and the more points you will get. Okay. Tar Ariano, steel meal situation plus an explanation, especially for Dave Chen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. He knows how steel meals work. We told him before we started recording. Uh, Sarah D. Bunting has zero steel meals. I have one steel meal plus one extravaganza gong. Valued guest, in this case, David Chen, has Two steel eels. All right. Let's throw it to Picky to see who will be going first. We will start with Sarah. All right. Our order today. Sarah first, Tara second, Dave third. We have 42 questions plus two equalizer challenge zones, and they will be worth four points apiece. Okay. Are we ready to play? They get around. Yes, sir. Yes. All right. Yep. Here we go. All right, Sarah, starting you off with two TV characters. You have to name the actor who played love interest to both. We have Angel from Angel and Dexter from Dexter. Okay, so um, Angel from Angel. Well, there's a bunch, but I'm assuming it's not uh, Crazy Landau. So I believe that that is Julie Benz. 
That is worth three points. We also had Jim Powell from No Ordinary Family. Sure. Yes. Very good. <laughs> Did we? <laughs> Tar Ariana. Yes. Nick Blaine of Handmaid's Tale. Uh-huh. Charlie Young of The West Wing. Okay. That is Elizabeth Moss. That is also good for three points. Mr. Dave Chen, your first question. Yes. I'm going to be very bad at this. I'm just calling it now. <laughs> Ann Perkins of Parks and Recreation. Lisa Sherburn of The West Wing. Sherburn of The West Wing. Um, Rob Lowe? Rob Lowe, three points. Yes! Back to Sarah D. Bunting. Carrie Bradshaw, Sex in the City. Ellen Parsons, Damages. <sighs> Who didn't Carrie sleep with, am I right? Carrie Bradshaw, Sex in the City. Who was on Damages, though? Um, so you want the actor name? I fuck Chris Noth. All right, moving on to the next hint. Sheila Hammond, Santa Clarita Diet. <laughs> uh, Ron Livingston. <laughs> that is incorrect. All right, now your next hint and your last hint. With the name of a character that the actor has played on one of the shows previously mentioned. All right. Okay. Joel Hammond, Santa Clarita Diet. Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> I didn't watch that. Can, foolish can I use a steel meal? Like, it, only if is, she answers incorrectly after. Oh, She's okay. got one more guest here. Robert Guillaume. I don't that know. Is I don't know. This. Incorrect. Dave Chen, do you want to use one of your steel meals? Yeah, sure. You, let's try it. You will get one point if answered correctly. Who do you think that is? Timothy Oliphant? That is correct. Timothy. Oh. Off with his Off pants. With his <laughs> correct. And that is <laughs> good for Mr. Chen for one point. <laughs> Back to Tara. Yes. Chandler Bing. from Friends. Yes. Sonny Crockett from Miami Vice. Oh. Oh, my. Ooh, had sex with both of them. Not necessarily had sex. Could Who have been dated both of them. Courtney Cox. Okay. Here's another character to add to that mix. Okay. Ray Curtis, Law and Order. Oh, I've almost said her, and then I thought that wasn't right. Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, correct. Two points. Uh, we are back to Dave. Dale Cooper, Twin Peaks. And Michael Bluth, Arrested Development. Both had love interests, romantic interests, played by the same actor. Name that actor for three points. Huh. Um. Wow. I, 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 I've actually watched both of those shows. <laughs> um, trying to cycle through all of my Michael Bluth knowledge here. Uh, I'm going to have to go to the next hint. Okay. Your next hint, another character to add to those two, John Dorian from Scrubs, JD. So, Dale Cooper, Twin Peaks, Michael Bluth, Arrested Development, John Dorian from Scrubs. Huh. This is this is really embarrassing. Um, I need to go to the last hint. I'm sorry. All right. Your last hint. The actor in question 
played Molly Clock on Scrubs. I got nothing. Charlie Seren. Incorrect. No steel mills, but for tits and giggles. Tara, I think you know. It's Heather Graham. Heather Graham. Heather Graham. Oh, right. Damn. I would have guessed. All right. All right, Sarah. Yeah. David Fisher, Six Feet Under. McKinley, Wet Hot American Summer, 10 Years Later. David Fisher. McKinley? McKinley, yes. Uh, oh, McKinley, fuck. Um, I need the next hint, please. Leslie Nope, Parks and Recreation. Okay, well, that's not going to help me. Next hint, please. The actor played Ben Wyatt on Parks and Recreation. Name that actor. David Fisher, six feet under. Adam Scott? I don't know. Okay. For one point. Good for a point. Tara Ariano. Yes. It's a character called Brandon Walsh from Beverly Hills 90210. Hey, not familiar. Also, Hank Lawson, Royal Pains. The show Tara watched and only Tara watched. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. Shit. Ooh. He dated a lot of women, though. Damn. Emma Caulfield? No nice. way! <laughs> Definitely would have gotten on the next hit. It was Xander from Buffy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Back to Dave Chen. Sydney Hansen from Providence, everybody's favorite show. Of course. <laughs> Lorelai Gilmore from Gilmore Girls. Oh, there's just no way I'm going to get this one, unfortunately. <laughs> I haven't seen either of those shows. All right. Uh, uh, sure, let's go hint? down. Yeah, next hint. Liz Lemon, 30 Rock. Huh. Okay, l- last hint. I have, I have a chance. I All have right. A chance. On 30 Rock, this actor played Drew Baird. Ah. Uh. And may um, I say, handily so. <laughs> um, <laughs> James Marston? <laughs> no, we're looking for Mr. John Ham. Oh, handily right. so. That was a little extra bonus clue for you. Ah, yeah. uh, damn. Sarah D. Bunting? Yep. Billy Epstein, difficult people? Piper Holloway, charmed, the original charmed. Oh my god. Uh I need the next hint, please. Eliza Dooley from Selfie. Remember Selfie? No. Hmm. Next hint, please. Alright, well this is not gonna help you. On Selfie, this actor played Henry Higgs. I mean it might help you, but based on oh, your reaction, perhaps not. Uh, so let me recap that for you. Play the love interest or romantic interest to Billy Epstein, Difficult People, Piper Holloway, Charmed, and Eliza Dooley, Selfie. Don't know. Anybody? John Cho. John Cho was the answer we're looking for, correct? Tara? Yes. Gil Grissom. Hello. Original Rays, CSI. Sure. Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld. God. Oh, was it shit? What's her name? <laughs> Mistress Heather. Oh God, what's her name? What's her name? What's her name? <laughs> I don't remember the actress's name. Yeah, it was one of the tougher ones. Is the next clue J- Tate Donovan from the OC? 
Luke Ward from the OC. Oh, uh, yeah. Lady Heather from CSI yeah. was your last clue. What? Nothing? I don't know. Does any, anyone want to steal meal? Melinda Clark. Damn. Sorry. Damn it. Yeah, that was a tough one. That was Damn one of the, it. One of the tougher ones. Uh, Dave Chen. Leonard Hofsta- Hofstader from Big Bang Theory. Uh huh. Bart Simpson from The Simpsons. Oh. Gonna need the next clue. Oh, sometimes I think you want to fail. <laughs> David Healy, Roseanne. Yeah. I I know exactly it's it's the woman who plays Roseanne's daughter, basically, right? Um but I don't know her name, unfortunately. <laughs> um so I, I wanna say Bonnie something? Anyway, last can you give me the last clue? Yeah, uh she played Darlene Connor on Roseanne. Your yeah. suspicions were correct. Yeah, uh, Bonnie, um, something. Dahlia Pfeiffer, <laughs> Dylan. Your Bonnie wasn't correct. We were looking for Sarah Gilbert. Yes. And uh, I wasn't making fun of you with the sometimes I think you want to fail. That was from her episode. It was a line from that episode. Two guys mm. from Kabul mm. restaurant. Yeah. I see. I see. Okay, it all makes sense though. All right, Sarah debunting. Everybody's got one question before our first score break. Oh. Picky looks at you and says, maybe Olivia Benson, Law and Order, Special Victims uh-huh. Unit. Rebecca Howe, cheers. Uh, what? <laughs> what? <Okay. laughs> Sorry. Uh, I meant to say, what? Um, <laughs> I, I need another hint, please. All right. Your third character, Grace Adler, Will and Grace. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> Or as Brian Cox would say, fuck off. Um, I need the third hit, please. Sorry, All everyone. Right. Uh, on Cheers, he played Russell Boyd. Russell Boyd. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. I only know this because um, we rewatched it like within the last and to remind three you, months. Uh, that probably is brother to Woody Boyd. Uh huh. Okay. Thanks. I'm just trying to remember. Oh, I wish I'd gotten the actual SVU character, and now I can't remember this fucking Harry Connick Jr. Yeah! I don't know. Oh! <laughs> Woo! Amazing. Stalling. It works. <laughs> All right, Tara. Yes. Doug Cummings, he, as the world turns. Okay. Jack Donaghy, 30 Rock. Oh. Mm hmm. Hmm. Edie Falco. Okay. All right. Here's a bit of an outlier clue. <laughs> yeah. Scott Landon from the upcoming Lizzie's story, Lisey's story, based on Stephen King book. So maybe if you follow industry news, you might know this. Mm, nope. No. Salma Hayek. Nancy Donovan, 30 Rock. <laughs> Julianne Moore. Correct. One point. All right. For Dave Chen, taking us into our first score break. First character, James T. Kirk from Star Trek. Second character, Jim Phelps, Mission Impossible. Oh, man. Okay, um, next clue. He's so young. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would struggle with this one, and I'm an old bag. Dex, Dexter, great name, Dynasty. There's, there's no way, but yeah, give me the last one. <laughs> All right. Uh, this actor played the following character in Dynasty. Alexis Morrill Carrington Colby Dexter Rowan. 
<laughs> I wish that helped me. If I you got know anything about Dynasty, I would say name that actor. Alexis. Uh, I know nothing about Dynasty, so um, Jane Doe. Oh no, it was <laughs> Joan Collins. Mm. Joan mm. Collins. Tara Ariano. Scores, please. All right, I have nine points. Sarah has five points. Dave is in the equalizer zone with four points. All right, Dave. Come on, Dave. <sighs> well. You know, if you had trouble with Dynasty, good luck, because I feel like half these questions on <laughs> these are. Trivial Pursuit TV box questions for the mid-90s are, in fact, about Dynasty. The other half are about Dallas. Good luck, Dave. Yes. Uh, I'm going to read you all the questions from this card. I'll let you know the categories as we go along. If you answer just three of the six right, we'll add four points to your total. Okay? Uh, okay. <laughs> that is the right <laughs> attitude. We'll start you out with classics. Now, remember, classics. This is from 1995-ish. What TV sergeant once mused, where would Al Capone be today if he wasn't willing to take chances? TV sergeant. So I'm going to give you a, I'll give you a clue. Answer starts with sergeant. <laughs> sergeant. Uh, mm, I don't know. James Smith. I got nothing. Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I should have known that. Sitcom. <laughs> should you? What sitcom character's dog answered to Jin Jin, spelt like the liquor? Sorry. <laughs> I got spelt nothing. like the liquor, but think about it, I'm going to say. What sitcom character's dog answered to Jin Jin? Spelled like the liquor, but hmm. Mm, nope, nope, still nothing. <laughs> Any guesses on that one from the crowd? Jin Jin Genie. I dream of Genie. Oh, of course. Mm. Drama, Dave. What city did Chrissy Love serve as an undercover agent? (laughs) She's an undercover agent working in what city? Name a city. A lot of TV shows take place in this Um, city. Okay, uh, Los Angeles. Yes! Oh my gosh. Okay. Shot in the dark. Shot in the dark. Oh boy. I think you got a chance. I think you got a crack at this, Dave. Not on this next question, but on the following two. Kids and games. Who was Augie Doggy's closest blood relative? (laughs) Other than the word relative, that whole thing was gibberish to me. Yeah. Who was Augie Doggy's closest blood relative, Dave Jen? Whoops. No. Uh, I'll answer that for you. Doggy Daddy. Ew, oh, yes. Gross. Ew. Right. Two categories left. Gotta get them both. I feel like it's possible for you. Good luck! Okay. Stars. The answer will be a celebrity of some sort. Mm-hmm. Who was the studio announcer for Saturday Night Live? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't oh, know. Sorry. This. Who is <laughs> the studio announcer for Saturday Night Live? As written in 1995. Yeah, not anymore. He is passed Rest away. In peace. Any idea? Yeah, no. I, I, yeah, it's reasonable to think I could have known this, but no, I got no one. Um, Andy Richter. No, incorrect. <laughs> it is Don Pardo. So we won't bother with that last question. Yes, yes. What can you just? Can I just know what that would have been? What was the longest-running variety show in TV history at 24 seasons? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Tracy Ed, Ullman show? Ed Sullivan show was the answer. Ed Sullivan show. Let's get back to the game, shall we? Sarah yes. Debunting? Yeah. Laverne DeFazio, Laverne and Shirley, Marcy Hill, Benson. 
love interest to both those characters played by the same actor. Can you name that actor? Three points. If um, you can. Probably not, but let's try Michael McKean. Incorrect. I'm going to add a third character to that mix. Rebecca Howe from Cheers. Oh. oh for God's sake. Uh, what's his nuts? Hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. McNuts. Oh, I do, but I can't accept that answer. <laughs> can't pull that name, so please tell me the next hint. This actor played on Cheers, Sam Malone. Oh, for fuck's sake. Ted Danson. <laughs> That's good for a Yay! point. Yay! This is question 17. Spread Eagle. Spread Eagle. Tom Bas... Tom Basalazo. Okay. From Looking. Sure. Mary Jo Shively, Designing Women. Uh... Oh! Scott Bakula? Uh. Yay! Uh, Three points. Dave Chen. So hot on looking. Monica Geller from Friends. Norma Bates from Bates Motel. Norma Bates. Mm, gonna need the next clue. Sydney Bristow, alias. Oh. Uh, last clue. He played on Friends Dr. Dr. Tim Burke. Nope, I don't got it. Michael Vartan. Correct. He played Tom Selleck's son. Well, I, I just want to say there was a point in my life that I did know that. But uh, <laughs> that point is now... That point was, is was a long, long time ago. It was. Yeah. Uh, this is question... For Sarah D. Bunting, Veronica Chase from Veronica's Closet and Lisa Miller, News Radio. Next hint, please. <laughs> Joyce Summers, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh! What? Oh! Uh, uh, John Ritter? Yeah! Two points. Correct. Back to Tara. Yes. Roz Doyle. Yes. Frazier. Uh-huh. Millie Grant, Scandal. God. Zero help. Next hint. <laughs> Never even heard of the show. Nancy... Lefebvre uh-huh. from Chambers. Sure. Yep. I've never heard of that show either. Proceed. He played Roger on Frasier. Roger? Yes. No last name? Apparently not. Okay, so... Billy Campbell. What if that was right? <laughs> Tony Goldwyn. Oh. I don't even remember him on Frasier. We must not have gotten to him yet. Dave Chen. Grace Adler, Will and Grace, making a return appearance. Kelly Gaines, Cheers. Uh, I'm sorry, I need the next next clue. Maggie Hart, True Detective. Mm. Huh. So, Will and Grace, Grace Adler, Cheers, Kelly Gaines, Maggie Hart, True Detective. Um... I need the final hint. You don't want to guess on True Detective? You get free guesses. No penalty. Oh, for... free guesses. Yeah. Taylor Kitsch was on True Detective. Colin Farrell. No, only one guess. Only one guess. Oh, okay. Nathan. <laughs> you get one guess per per hint. Nathan on Will and Grace. Probably not going to help you. But. No. You still got that True Detective angle to work. <laughs> um, uh, Colin Farrell. Cheers, True Detective. Woody Harrelson was the actor. We oh, it was the other one. Okay. <laughs> All right, back to Sarah. Fraser Crane again from Fraser. 
Lena Adams Foster from The Fosters. Oh, yeah. And Matt Santos, The West Wing. Sure. Oh, no. <laughs> I actually watched that season. I was the one. And she played Helen Santos on The West Wing. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Oh, wait. Terry Polo? Yeah! Oh. Wow. Why can't I come up with these sooner? <laughs> Tara. Yeah. Blair Waldorf, Gossip Girl. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Lasile, Lasile, yeah, Lasile Kings. I may be pronouncing that wrong. Mm-hmm. Hint. Regina, Once Upon a Time. God. Uh, hint. This actor played Carter Bazen on Gossip Girl. Mm, no idea. That's the Winter Soldier, Sebastian Stan. Oh, right. I forgot he was on Kings. Dave Chen. Dave Nelson from News Radio. Jerry Seinfeld from Seinfeld. Maura Tierney. Good guess. Otto from the West Wing. Otto. I don't even remember who that character was. I don't either. Um, <laughs> sounds like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to... Uh, oh, I don't want to cough up a hint. Hold on. Um, uh, all right. No, go ahead. Okay. I need the next one. The actor played Genie on Seinfeld. On the show where Jerry dated somebody new every episode. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you a hint. Uh, this actor is a comedian. Mm, I don't got it. Janine Garofalo. Was the oh, right. Sarity Bunting. Bree Vandekamp, Desperate Housewives. Charlotte York, Sex in the City. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. That's good for three. Sure is. Yep. Carrie Bradshaw, Sex in the City. <laughs> yes. Patrick, Grace Adler, Will and Grace. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> Ugh. That is a grim threesome, whoever this guy turns out to be. <laughs> Gregory Hines. <laughs> Selena Meyer, Veep. Oh, John Slattery. John Slattery, correct for two. Back to Dave Chen. Alicia Florick from The Good Wife. Princess Margaret from The Crown. Um, Haven't seen either of those two shows, so I'm going to need another hint there. Lady Mary Crawley, Downton Abbey. He is the best <laughs> at car. He's pretty good. I definitely haven't seen that one, so I need one more hint. I mean, he's okay. No, he's good. Um, Henry Talbot, <laughs> Downton Abbey. Yeah, I, I wish I'd seen that movie with my wife, because uh, then I could m- probably answer this question, but uh, I got nothing. He wasn't in it. Sarah knows. <laughs> yeah, I do. Sarah Buntig, what's she doing here? Uh, it's Matthew Good. Matthew sure Good, is. correct. Oh, I know who that is, too. Everybody's got one more question for the uh, second score break. Getting down to it. Sarah D. Bunting. Dana Whitaker, Sports Night. Leslie Carrington, Dynasty. Oh, Dynasty. <laughs> and this would be the original Dynasty, I assume. Yes. There's no Leslie on New Dynasty. So uh, Dana Whitaker, Sports Night. Leslie Carrington, Dynasty OG. 
Um, if he was a Dynasty OG, I will be so impressed. He wasn't. Peter Krause. <laughs> Your third, Marcy Darcy, married with children. <laughs> You're going to kill yourself when you find out this answer. Oh. Oh, it's... Oh, God. It's the show killer, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody's picking up my subtle hints. Ted. Uh-huh. Ted. Yes. He played Ace on the love boat. Someone help me. <laughs> Ted. <laughs> Tedson. Uh, she, she asked for help into in a different world, and the different world said no. Ted. Wait, doesn't she have one more hint? Yes. He Ted played. was correct. Okay. And this actor, good save, Dave, played Gordon on Sports Night. Gordon on Sports Night. Yep. Ted. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> I'm so bad. <laughs> oh. uh, Tar? It's Ted McGinley. McGinley. Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, sorry, Sarah. You knew it, but you didn't know. So am I. So am I. Yes. Corey, Boy Meets World. Okay. Dipper Pines, Gravity Falls. Linda Cardellini. Yes. Three points. Hey. Nicely done. All right. Dave Chen. Mm -hmm. Hannah Rogers, Everwood. Christy Plunkett, Mom. Mm. I I don't know what any of that means. (laughs) So I'm going to need the next thing. Okay. (laughs) Ann Perkins, Parks and Recreation. Everwood. Park. Mom, Parks and Rec. Huh. Maybe it's the guy who played Mark Brandanowitz or no 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 no. Wait, yes, maybe. Okay, what's the last one? This actor played Andy Dwyer on Parks and Recreation. Uh Chris Pratt? That's good. Yay! Yes! And that takes us into our second score break. Scores please start. All right. I have seventeen points. Sarah DeBenting has twelve points. Dave has five points. All right, Dave. Woo, here's more your chance. than zero points. You're gonna do it. <laughs> Good luck. All right, let's do this quick. Classics. What was George Burns's last line on each George Burns and Gracie Allen show from eighteen forty two? These are all for me, right? Yep. Yes. Uh, no, you actually I, I know don't, this. I don't know what that is. Wait, do I? You're saying I do? No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Say goodnight, Gracie. Yeah, Sitcoms. you do. <laughs> what movie was the sitcom Baby Talk based on? <sighs> Baby Talk. Uh, Baby's Day Out. Look who's talking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Drama. What actor slash singer played Devin Milford? anti-Russian guerrilla leader in America. That's America with a K. It was a miniseries. Mm, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know that. Actor <laughs> slash singer, I will say act, give you a little more hint. Actor slash country singer, kind of. Garth Brooks? No. <laughs> Chris Christopherson. All right. Kids and games, can both members... <laughs> can, bo- can both members of a dance fever team be male? Ooh. Kids and games. Uh, no. Oh, yes. Wow, <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah. Very progressive. Right, you're for out of the running fever. for that. So let's uh, let's put you out of misery and get <laughs> oh, back to the game. Everybody right. has four questions left, so still lots of points in play. Okay. Back to Sarah D. Bunting. 
Meredith Gray from Gray's Anatomy. Uh huh. Nancy Drew from the 1995 Nancy Drew. Oh. Uh, I mean, Patrick Dempsey? Felicity Porter, Felicity. Oh, yeah. Forgot he was on that, Nancy Drew. Okay. So, which one? (laughs) Which one is it? Let's go with Scott Foley. He plays Dr. Nick Marsh on Grey's Anatomy. Dr. Peter I'm going to give you a hint. Um, big hint. Big hint. You are half right. <laughs> yeah. Speedy. Scott Speedman. Right. Okay. Good for one. Tara. Yeah. John Cage. Allie McBeal. Mm-hmm. Laura Manning. Ellen. I don't remember who John Cage was, so keep going. Jake McKinnon, Another World. Remember your favorite soap opera from the 80s, Another World? Anne Hage. Two points. What? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nicely done. Okay. Dave Chen, Hannah Horvath, Girls, and Elizabeth Jennings, The Americans. Haven't seen either of them, unfortunately, but let's say Adam Driver. Good guess. Yep. Good guess. Scotty, Brothers and Sisters. So somebody was in Girls, The Americans, and Brothers and Sisters. Gonna need the last hint. All right, it's probably not gonna help you. Kevin Walker is the character he played on Brothers and Sisters. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't got it. Sarah? He owned Hannah? Ooh. Yeah, just in a one-off. Matthew Reese. Matthew Reese, thank you. Hmm. Sarah D. Bunting, Casey McCall, Sports Night. Andy Brown, Everwood. And you should get this answer given recent yes, events. True. Uh, yeah, I can I can I give it, please? <laughs> Brenda Strong. <laughs> Incorrect. For giving me lift. <laughs> Three points. <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, Tari Ariano. Yes. Jackson Avery, Grey's Anatomy. Yes. Salvador Romano, Mad Men. I don't remember who Sal was with. Keep going, please. Bright Abbott Everwood. Oh, right. Um, this actress's name is Sarah something. Yep. Don't remember her last name. Well, I can tell you she played April Kepner. Yep. In Grace. Yeah. Not going to help you, though. No, I don't remember. You were correct on the Sarah part. Yep. What you needed was Drew. Ding. Dave Chen, Selena Meyer, Veep, Salome, True Blood. Uh, next simply. Tobias Beecher, Oz. Mm. And final hint. On Oz, he played Chris Keller. I got nothing. <laughs> that was one Christopher Maloney. Yeah. Christopher Maloney. Yes, okay, that damn it. That big ass is in all those shows. <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting. Bonnie Plunkett from Mom. Grace Kelly, Grace Under Fire. William Fickner? Yeah! Oh, Fickty! Thanks, canon presentation that someone's nice wife made. (laughs) Indeed. Tara, what's your last name again? (laughs) Will Truman, Will and Grace. Yes. Karen Sisko, Karen Sisko. Bobby Cannavale? Mm. Shit. 
Addison Montgomery private practice. Mm. Oh, Patrick Dempsey. Good for two. Correct. Dave Chen. Kate Harper, the West Wing. Abby Whalen, Scandal. Whelan, probably, I guess. Abby uh, Whelan. Okay. I, I, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to go with... Um, what's the guy who played Josh Lyman? Um... This is the worst time to blank on this stuff. Give me the next hint, please. Okay. The third is Natalie Hurley, Sports Night. So we got a guy that was in the West Wing, Scandal, and Sports Night. Uh, Joshua Molina? Joshua yes! All right. Everybody has one question left. So quickly, can I get the scorers, Tara? Yes. Uh, Dave Chen has seven points. Sarah D. Bunting has 19 points. I have... 21. All right. It's still anybody's game except for Dave Chen. <laughs> but Dave Chen might just get that bonus multiplier that we've never seen before. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Sarah D. Bunting, are you ready? Not really. Let's proceed. All right. Here we go. Sharon Carter and then provided by Mark. Not that one, whatever that means. Maybe there's a famous Sharon Carter out there. That's the from That's Captain that America. The Emily Van Camp plays Sharon Carter oh, okay. in Captain America. All right. Sharon Carter. Two guys, a girl in a pizza place. And Kelly Kramer, one life to live. <laughs> Dick. <laughs> I know you're angry okay. now, but I think the next the next hint's going to make you happy. Hint. Kate Bishop, Castle. Isn't Kate Bishop the name of Hawkeye Girl? Why would that make me happy? I don't. I don't know. Fillion. Yeah. Who else would it be? It's <laughs> hey! There's like two people in that show. We're all tied up. All right, Tara. I need one point to get this win. <sighs> okay. Beecham Day, Tales of the City. Fuck off. <laughs> yes. Fraser Crane. <laughs> Fraser. And I just want to say Beecham is 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 uh, spelled Beauchamp. Okay. Just so you know. Um. I mean, now I'm thinking it's that guy that was in the episode that I did for the canon, but I don't remember that actual oh. name. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going. John Adams. John Adams. Oh, Laura Linney. Laura Linney is good for two. Good for two. Yay! All right, Dave Chen, last question Yay! of the game. This one's worth 20 points, yep. right? <laughs> Absolutely. Brenda Chenoweth, six feet under. Leslie Nope, Parks and Recreation. Huh. I was going to say Peter Krause for sure, but now I'm not as sure. Um, but I don't remember. So let's go with Peter Krause. No, it's not it. Carrie Bradshaw, Sex and the City. Chris Noth? This actor played Justin Anderson on Parks and Recreation. And Tara loves him because this man loves his dog. I didn't watch the latter seasons, unfortunately. Uh, but maybe he's from the original seasons. I don't know. Oh, give me a guess. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, it's I only remember Leslie. <laughs> I only remember Leslie being with Adam Scott's character. Um, so yeah, I got nothing. Tara, do you know who it is? No. You love a man who loves his oh, dog. Oh yes, I do. It is. It's Justin Theroux. It is Justin Theroux. Just love his oh. dog. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Right. That's why you love Justin Theroux. Okay. It's one of the reasons. Final scores, please, Tara. <laughs> All right. 
Dave Chan finished with seven points. Sarah finished with 21 points. I had 23 points. Uh, close very, game. very close game. Well Excellent. Played. Very well played. Tara wins, but we do have this tiebreaker. We're going to repurpose. A steel mill is at stake. Whoever answers first will get the steel mill. I'm just going to start reading characters and TV shows. We're not even going to get into any of the actors' characters. Okay, and I, am, am I eligible for yes. this or no? Yes, yes. This is for okay, everybody. Okay. I'm yep. reading... Yeah. Character love interest from shows. Mm-hmm. I have six of them to go through if you need it. Okay. Answer it anytime. And we just we just shout out the answer. You right? do. Yep. Yeah. Jay Blazarian, Big Mouth. Serena Vander Woodson, Gossip Girl. Joni Stubb, Deadwood. Dan Humphrey, Gossip Girl. <clears throat> Logan Eccles, Veronica Mars. Kristen Bell. That is correct. On the fifth, your sixth was Chidi from The Good Place. Um, well done, Tar. Tara. 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 Well done. Congratulations, Yay. Tara. Well, guys, that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We analyzed AMC's dispatches from elsewhere before going around the dial with stops at Love is Blind, The Outsider, Teen Mom Young and Pregnant, A French Village, and TV in East Africa. Dave Cole explained why he is not a crackpot for poo-pooing transparent computer screens on TV. While Dave Chen successfully explained why Succession Season 1 finale belongs in the canon. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and Tara was the winner of this week's Love Interests Game Time. Remember, we're listening. I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Sarah D. Bunting, it's just an arm, Tara Ariano, be a fucking nurse, and Dave Chen. Fuck off. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. Guess, guess who just didn't kill anyone, but maybe only lost a couple of thumbs? I, I don't know. This guy. <laughs>